Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, everyone. I am Sue from the Salveson Mind and Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm recording another episode of our podcast, Psychological. Um, we are trying to make a little bit of an evidence-based contribution to the conversations that lots of people are having about child and adolescent well-being and development and learning at the moment. And today I am absolutely thrilled to be talking to Emily Jones from the Centre for Brain and Cognitive Development at Birkbeck University of London. And she is going to be talking to me about a paper, we will have to unpick the title of this a bit, which is called Infant EEG Theta Modulation Predicts Childhood Intelligence. Ooh. Hello, Emily. Hi, Sue. How are you doing? Get well. <laughs> Surviving. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the, on the podcast. Um, so before we kind of analyse some of the words in that title a bit, could you just start by telling me what you discovered when you did this piece of research? Yeah, so we found that individual differences in how the child's brain responds to new social and non-social videos predict their later cognitive development in, in childhood. Amazing. Oh, so snappy, Emily, you're a pro. <laughs> um, so, okay, so let's just go back into um, uh, the kind of, um, details of that a little bit, right? So, um, you w describe to me what you mean by EEG theta modulation and what that kind of represents, if you could, please. Sure. So, what we're doing here is measuring brain activity using EEG. Um, so, networks of sensors that measure the coordinated activity of lots of neurons together. Um, and brain signals are, are generally these sort of complex waveforms, and we can divide those up into different frequencies, so different sort of speeds of, of communication. Um, and theta is one of those one of those frequency ranges. Um, and people, you know, have looked at it a lot, and we think that theta has, you know, some role in, in learning, attention, and memory. And here, what we were doing is looking at how activity in that theta band changes in response to viewing naturalistic things. So babies watch videos of women telling nursery rhymes or toys moving, and we look at how their theta power changes as they watch that video. So the degree to which um, theta power changes in that individual child. And do you, is there a kind of um, precise uh, interpretation, you know, that like an increased theta power means that that child is more engaged with what they're looking at or or is I don't know working harder to process what they're looking at can you can you take it that far or is that really conjecture yeah well so that's a great question so that so I I think those are two hypotheses for what's going on but yeah the right. we don't exactly know so yeah one possibility is that this increase in theta means that they're engaging with the um the material um you know we find that even at the same age, the kids who had a bigger increase in theta were the ones who had stronger cognitive skills. So it could be about engaging with the material, or yet yeah, could be about working harder to process it, which again could be you know, indicating they're processing it at a deeper level. We're not sure, and that's that's the part that's difficult to address because you know with infants you can't do the kind of manipulation studies that you might do in, a, mm. in an animal model so we can't manipulate theta to causally look at what it's actually doing so we have to sort of try to infer from you know patterns of association with other tasks mm. and things mm. Mm. but i suppose given this link to um 
uh, a later kind of measure of IQ, you know, you can, I guess, rule out the possibility that um, it's not just ethical processing in the sense of someone who's actually really struggling with, with the material, right? Because this is something exactly. I always think about with eye tracking data. You know, you're looking at something more because you're just so fascinated by what you're looking at or are you looking at it more because you're puzzled by it and can't really work it out mm -hmm. and so that link to IQ is quite revealing isn't it yeah I think so, so I think yeah you can certainly probably rule out that it's that it's to do with struggling it could be that mm. they're making more effort still but they're making more effort and that leads to more learning and that's you know why it's mm -hmm. a positive development but yeah, you could probably argue that they're not making more effort because they're finding the material difficult to say, you know, they're not understanding the rhymes or, you know, they're not being able to process the movement of the toys or something like that. And these are relatively, so the, you know, the toy videos are like little balls going down a chute, you know, that they're probably not, for a 12-month-old, they're probably not very complicated to understand. So I think it probably is much more likely that it's a, a sort of attention engagement measure. Um, but yeah, we can't do with that. Mm, mm. Yes, yes. Extracting lots of of information and learning from the content that they're getting. Exactly. Um, yeah. If you if you see something new and you engage more with it and you learn more from it, you know, over time, you might imagine that that accumulates into you know a, mm. a more sort of positive cognitive developmental trajectory. Mm, mm. Um, so, gosh, we, we, we're getting ahead of ourselves, though, because I really should be asking you, I suppose, how you came into asking this question in the first place. Could you tell us a bit more about the kind of wider context of the study? Um, mm -hmm. Was this part of one of your longitudinal cohorts? Yeah, so we, we run a lot of longitudinal studies of both typically developing babies, but also babies who have um, family members with, with neurodevelopmental conditions like autism or ADHD. And we're you know, interested in what in early development might predict later outcomes. So both you know, cognitive outcomes, but also social outcomes, you know, for two reasons, partly, partly from a sort of more clinical idea of identifying children early who might need some extra support but also scientifically trying to understand, you know, what individual differences in early development matter for later skills mm. and, and which ones don't, you know. And so can mm. we identify some of these paths through which you might get, you know, influences on learning? So, you know, what, what types of attention matter for what the child accumulates and what don't? So it mm. came out of a broader, broader set of work on that. And here we're particularly looking at yeah, the cognitive development side. Mm. And was this a particular group of infants who took part in this study? Yeah, this study actually integrated data across a number of cohorts. So the first was a group of typical babies where they were all seen at 12 months. So we were looking concurrently at, at theta change and um, cognitive development. And then we looked mm. at whether we could replicate and extend it in a couple of other cohorts. One that I worked with in the US when I was a postdoc there. So those are babies with older siblings with autism. And so in that cohort, we saw that this seed to change mother at 12 months predicted cognitive development by two. And then in the UK, the basis study that I now work with, we then looked at that study and we could show that this this theta change measure at 12 months predicted cognitive outcomes both at three and at age seven. Um, so it was oh. nice because we were able to pull together, you know, these existing data sets to, to look at this one measure and, and it's sort of consistency across multiple different um, different developmental time points. Mm, that's so cool and so impressive, especially in infant research, right, where where any kind of replicability is so, is so challenging to achieve. Um so, yeah, well done. That's amazing, Emily. 
<laughs> Thank you. And then we, so we did then go on with, with um, Ellie, one of my master's students, she then looked at um, whether or not we could replicate the same thing in a pre-registered design um, mm. for that exact reason that you were saying that, you know, in terms of replicability, it's really important to think about whether or not we can then, you know, pre-specify. And, and that other paper gave us a nice hypothesis. So then we looked at um, a different cohort that was Carla Holmbo's cohort of babies. And again, we showed that theta change um, predicted later cognitive development, this time between six and nine months. Um, but we effectively confirmed our, our pre-registered hypothesis. So we think this is, a you know, at least a relatively robust result, um, even mm. if we don't even understand, you know, fully what it means yet. Yeah, well, I'm, I might try and push you on that in a little, in a little <laughs> moment or two. But... Um, I suppose first, I'm just curious about the process of data collection, right? I think people listening will be interested to hear how you do something like EEG with babies. So could you tell mm. us a wee bit about that? So with difficulty. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so we use these sensor nets that, um, that get soaked in water and there's like 128 little little sensors with little sponges on them. So then like, they're designed to be sort of infant friendly. Um, and, you know, once the hat's on, they, they tend to forget about it. And then we play them. And this is partly why we use these kinds of videos, because they're engaging for the baby and they enjoy them. So, mm-hmm. you know, we use the kinds of videos that the infants might like to watch. So, yeah, mm-hmm. here they're videos of nursery rhymes or toys moving. Um, and then we do some other tasks too. You know, babies have snacks if they need them. We throw bubbles, lots of, <laughs> lots of things to try to get them to, to stay calm and engage with us. But... And um, broadly speaking, we're you know, fairly successful. Yeah, and do you think, you know, because I, I've done some infant research as well, and that, it's something I often think about, you know, there are babies who come in that you don't manage to get data mm. from, right? You know, and how much do you feel like that sort of random, you know, fussy mm. baby on the day, not really in the mood? And how much do you worry that we're sort of systematically missing some kids who maybe are, perhaps are developing atypically or, you know, and, and who are sort of not complying with our data collection efforts? No, it's a great question. We've looked at it in a few studies. There's one easy study we did with, with kids with autism where we had a very high dropout rate and we looked at, you know, but the kids were all extremely well characterized in a ton of different mm. measures. And the only individual difference measure that, that related to whether they did the EEG or not was tactile sensitivity, which you might imagine. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, so, of but all of their cognitive skills, social skills, IQ, none of those um, actually related to whether or not they did the EG. And we find a similar thing in the baby studies that whenever we looked at it, A, it doesn't seem to be particularly reliable. So, you know, a kid will, will do the EG at five months and then won't get 10 months and they will again at 14 mm-hmm. months. And, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be a particularly stable individual difference. Um, and we've been doing some more test-retest reliability studies recently where we see a similar thing that, so I think actually, probably in infancy, certainly, it's actually a bit more random. Just uh, mm. is it a good day for that child or not? With a with a bit perhaps of of sort of tactile issues thrown in there. So I think if particularly you're studying tactile sensitivity, then it might be more of a worry. But interestingly mm. enough, actually, we don't seem to find that systematically if there is anything else, at least in what we've done. Oh, that's so reassuring. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and surprising right. somewhat because you sort of, and it's interesting because you get, you know, when you talk to moms beforehand, often they'll say, oh, he doesn't like hats, he won't have hats. And, and again, that doesn't seem to necessarily predict whether or they will or won't do it in the imminent. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tell me a bit about the, the kind of analysis that you were doing. You know, you've got all of these different 
cohorts. Um, I guess you've got different time frames. You mentioned, I think, the first one was a cross-sectional data, mm-hmm. and then you're looking more longitudinally. You know, how? what were some of the kind of challenges that you were dealing with with the analysis? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's obviously with longitudinal studies, we have a lot of issues with things like missing data, you know, thinking about imputation methods or mm-hmm. um, using models that, you know, can take that into account. And the other issue always with the EG data is the, the sort of potential for multiple comparisons. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why actually in this paper we did in the first, the 12-month concurrent cohort, we looked at lots of different things. But then because what we found was this association with frontal theta, we just looked at in the other two cohorts. Right. So we were able to use the fact that we have multiple cohorts to take a sort of discovery and pseudo replication. I mean, then it's not a direct replication because, as you say, we looked at slightly different ages in the other two, but we were able to take this um, this approach of then narrowing down and just looking at one thing, which I think gives mm. more confidence in the findings. I mean, the mm. other thing I would say, the, the, the reason we were able to do that is because um, those videos that we designed and used across multiple cohorts were originated from the collaboration between Mark and Jerry and us a long time ago. And we were all sort of committed to using the same videos in multiple different studies. And that's allowed us now to start reaping the benefits of that where we can look at at least semi-replication mm-hmm. cohorts to, to get more confidence in things. And I think that, you know, that sharing, data sharing is really important, particularly in developmental science. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And it's such a kind of inspiration. I think the, the kind of group down at Birkbeck has been such leaders mm-hmm. in this. So, um, yeah, I completely agree. And and it's so nice to see it yielding results because I bet you put all of that in place, you know, years and years ago, right? Yeah, years ago. That was like 2005, probably. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very patient approach to science that you're adopting. <laughs> it's very slow science. <laughs> right. <laughs> So what do you think what do you think we should be learning from this finding? I suppose I'm interested in um the you know, is theta is the theta signal that you're picking up a kind of driver of something? I know I mean I know obviously as you said, we can't really manipulate an infant's theta waves, right? But is it is it a is it a signal? Is it a marker of something or is it a driver of something? And can we tell the difference, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. So, I mean, we can start to get towards it. So, so Katharina Vegas has done some really nice stuff looking at, um, you know, if you give children individual toys and you look at which toy they show a, a theta response to, you can subsequently mm-hmm. show they're more likely to learn or remember it. So, you know, differentiating mm. in in yeah between different objects that the child interacted with and using that data signal to predict sort of immediate learning. Um, mm. Something that we're trying to do at the moment is is set up these sort of real time closed loop approaches where we measure theta in real time and then try to find what it is that engages theta responses best in that particular baby. And then again, we can look at is that also then the thing that um, they would learn and remember better. So we can get more towards at least whether, you know, theta modulation associates with learning and memory on a smaller time scale, but it mm-hmm. still doesn't fully address that sort of causality question. Of, is it the theta that's sort of causing it in inverted commas or is it, 
is the digital mm-hmm. index or something else that's happening. And mm-hmm. I, I think I don't. In human infants, you'd have to, you know, I don't know if you can do it. I think in animal models, you know, obviously hippocampal theta, you can look at those kinds of rhythms, and, and hippocampal theta is very important in learning and memory, and you can look at it causally there. But in human development, I don't know. I'm sure somebody will invent a clever method. I mean, you can drive theta, right? So you can show babies, you know visual stimuli that flicker in the theta range and increase their theta power and then if that does improve memory for that thing they were looking at so that might be one way of doing it i don't know if anyone's done that yet probably well maybe that's the next step but i mean Mm. you don't necessarily want to end up with you know classrooms full of um (laughs) no it doesn't sound I guess I'm curious as well whether it's really interesting to you talking about, you know, those studies comparing the theta response to different individual toys or objects, right, and mm. then relating that to learning. I suppose I'm curious as well whether you'd see that maybe at a domain level, you know. So, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm risk. this is a bit risky because I don't want to invoke anything like learning styles here, right? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, learning styles are nonsense. But... Um, <laughs> but you know, definitely people have different areas of strength, right? You might, you know, you might have really advanced language development. You might have really good motor control or whatever, you know, and I just wonder if there would be any relationship there in terms mm. of individual differences and kind of profiles of, of cognitive strength at a more domain level rather than, you know, mm. individual things that you've interacted with. Yeah, and I think, that, I mean, so that kind of where we want to go with just real-time stuff because so in, mm. in a lot of the work we do with say kids with autism you know we, we show often what we do is show them stimuli that typical kids like to look at and then look at whether they don't like them as much but actually what we want to know right is what they are interested in what would engage them what are they interested in learning about and then we can build off of that and and this sort of closed loop idea where you might use something like this theta signal exactly to look at different domains or different sort of types of experience or ways mm. in which information is presented and if you can identify from individual kids, yeah, what what which way of presenting information is optimal for them or which yeah, type of type of domain are they most interested in through using feedback from their brain, you know, that that could potentially be much more generalizable then. Um, yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, well, that is amazing, Emily. Thank you so much for telling me all about it. And before we finish, we do have to, to wrap up because I keep calling this podcast Bite Size. And so I have to try and, um, <laughs> to try and deliver on that promise. But um, I wondered if you had any advice for any kind of early career researchers or students who are listening, if there was anything that you would want to share with them from your um, perspective? Yeah, I mean, I always struggle with this, you know, and I think the only thing I always say is I, I don't really have any advice. And I think the main thing I would say is maybe don't listen to, to most of the advice that's out there. And I think, you know, everybody has a very different path. And I, you know, it's interesting because it's sort of the extent to which you can drive things or, you know, what, what are the causal paths in your research career? I don't know, but I would just try and enjoy it but and, and try not to look at other people too much and think I should be doing that, I should be doing that because honestly, sometimes that's just a path of misery. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> oh, no, I think that's, I think that's really something <laughs> quite liberating for people. And there is this <laughs> big problem, isn't there, with kind of survivor bias, you know, so you, you can look yeah, back you. on your on your career pathway and see a sort of causality you know I did this and that how I got to where I am and it's 
yeah, not necessarily. No, mm. exactly. I mean, I think my two years at McDonald's, I would say that was an incredibly formative experience. But <laughs> other than that, yeah, I don't know. Wow, this is great. This is a true longitudinal developmental researcher, right? You're exactly. applying your research analysis to your own career path. Exactly. It's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> Correlation's not causation. That's <laughs> <laughs> what <you should> remember. <laughs> Oh, fantastic, Emily. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Anyone who is listening, you will be able to find out more about Emily's work by following the links in the podcast description um, in your podcast app by um, tapping on the podcast details or on the Buzzsprout page where the podcast is listed. Um, Thank you so much, Emily. It was fantastic to talk to you. Thank you for giving me some time in the middle of lockdown i really appreciate it no worries Um, thank you good luck with whatever comes next thanks okay we did it i thought that went quite smoothly